Thanks for listening to audio from Rockhaven Church. For more information on our ministry, please visit us at our website at www.rockhavenchurch.org. Last week, John started on chapter 18. We almost got through the end. It's an incredible chapter. Absolutely an incredible chapter, what's going on. Elijah, the man, the prophet of God, has done something incredible. He has uh, listened to God. He has gone to Obadiah, encountered him. He's gathered all of Israel, all of the the prophets, the men of God, and has brought them to uh, Mount Carmel, where he is challenging the prophets of Baal to to a test of whose God is real. Who is the real God? We all know that, that Baal is, is not. It's, it's not real. He's made up. He's, he's fake. And it is the, uh, John talked about last week, that idolatry is really some form of self-worship, that they themselves have given this thing, golden calf, wood, metal, whatever, they have given it the power. They have given them power over this idol, that they have the ones who are doing that, that they've made him seem like a god. So Elijah challenges them. They have the two altars set up. They have the stones. They, he lets the, the prophets of Baal go first. They pick their bull. They put them up there, and they, and they cry all morning. And Elijah tends to mock them. And we talked about, I think this is funny, John said, mocking is not a spiritual gift. Remember that. Uh, but Elijah does this because he's, he's setting this up, and they cut themselves, and they wail, and they're, they're trying to call Baal to come to take the sacrifice. And obviously that doesn't happen. So Elijah takes his turn and he gets down and he prays and says, Oh Lord, show these people who you are. Show that you are the true God. And the fire comes down and consumes it. They dumped all the water on the altar. This shouldn't have burned. And yet a fire from heaven comes down, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water, consumes the stone, and consumes the dust and the dirt around it. Absolutely obliterating what is there. An amazing, powerful picture, but just of the small might of God. Just the small, because our God is so much bigger, and that's just a small piece of his power. And yet it was immense. And 450 prophets of Baal were captured, they were arrested, and they were killed for their blasphemy, for their treachery, for their continuing in the sin of idolatry for the, the people of Israel. It's just, it's just not good. This is where we pick up. At the end of 18, in chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah says to Ahab, so can you just, just imagine for just a second here? You're thinking, oh man, Joel only got three words and he's already pausing to stop. That's what I do. <laughs> and he says to Ahab, Ahab has witnessed this entire thing. The fire, the attempting of the worship, the tempting of the Baal, God coming through, the capturing and slaughtering of 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah just, and there's Ahab saying the whole time, I got to wonder what's going through his head. I got to wonder if he's just a little bit shell-shocked, if he's had a literal come to Jesus moment here. He's watching something, his whole idea of what he thought his religion was get completely destroyed in a moment. And he's sitting here, and there's Elijah. And I've always imagined Elijah, he's pretty disheveled. He, he looks not exactly like a guy to be like, hey, man, I really, I, you know, I want to hang out with you all the time. I think he's kind of bearded. I think he's kind of wild looking. I mean, that's just how I imagine Elijah, because he's spent time in the wilderness. And here's Ahab, just hanging out here. And he's going to hang out this entire time and listen to what Elijah's about to do. Because you have to remember, Israel is really upset with Elijah because they think Elijah is the one who's in sin. They think because Elijah 
has sinned because he continues to be uh, obstinate and disobedient and sinful, that they have no rain. It's been years since rain. So they think this is all Elijah's fault. And so Elijah now finally comes through and God is God and shows everyone that he is God. He's going to say something to Ahab. And I think this is it's just great. Um, go up, eat, drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. Can you, just, can you just imagine Elijah gets done with this picture, the fire consumes it, and Ahab's standing there <clears throat> thinking, shell-shocked, watching his prophets be destroyed. And he looks at Ahab, he goes, do you, do you hear that? That sounds like rain. Just absolutely flipping it on the head. I mean, the entire religion of Ahab has completely gone upside down. And now the person who they're blaming for rain is saying, oh yeah, by the way, I think rain is coming. I can hear it coming. Here it is. You think I'm at fault? You think this is the reason because of my sin? It's because of your sin of idolatry that there's been no rain. God is proving that he is God on all fronts. So he says, go eat, go drink. And so that's what he does. He go up there and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. So just, just imagine, I mean, if it were me and I had just done this whole picture of Baal and I'd watched my God show up and do this amazing, impressive thing, I would probably be sitting there strutting around like, told you so. I told you, I told you, I've been telling you for years this is what it is, but Elijah says, but there is rain coming and he goes up on top of the mountain and he doesn't do anything fancy, doesn't do anything special, wave his arms. He gets on his knees and puts his face to the ground and he prays. What a... What an awesome picture of humility for Elijah, but an awesome picture of God is the God who's doing this. He's the one that's teaching. He's the one that's worthy of worship. He's the one that's showing. He's the one that's in power. He has withheld the rain to show you, to teach you, to get at your hearts. Stop following idols. Stop pursuing the things of yourself. Stop pursuing the world. God is beckoning these people. And here we have Elijah face down, face to the earth, and he begins to pray. And he sends his servant up. He says, go up to the top of the mountain and look towards the sea. And so he sends his prophet up and he comes back down and he goes, what did you see? And he goes, nothing. So we're like, whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not what's supposed to happen. Well, just, just, just listen. And he says, go again, but go again seven times. Now, this is not like some magical number that if I do something seven times, therefore God will grant it. That's not what this is about. Seven is a number we're going to see a couple different times in this. It's nothing mystical. It's nothing magical. Don't, don't overthink this. But he says it seven times because it's, God is complete. It's, it's a completion number. I'm going to do this seven times because God told me to, not because it takes seven times for God to listen. No, no, no. It's seven times because this is what God is going to do, and we're going to do it because God is faithful. And so he goes up seven times, and after the seventh time, he comes back down, and the servant says to Elijah, and this is verse 44, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. This little puff of clouds coming up. And he says, Now go say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. It has been years since we've had rain. It has been dry. I know this is hard for us to imagine considering the last couple of weeks here. But he just told Ahab, you see that little cloud? I would go back to your house right now because in a little bit, your chariot's going to be so flooded and muddied with water that you're not going to be able to get there. That's, that's impressive. 
you better get in your chariot and go because it's about to flood. It's about to rain. It's about to have water come down. In a little while, while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, there was great rain. And I think this, this last phrase, I think, is just something we kind of miss often when we read this story because we just read the, the prophets of Baal, the fire consuming from heaven, Elijah telling there's rain, rain coming, and then Ahab gets in his chariot, and the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah, and he gathered up his garments, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He ran. He didn't, he didn't take a chariot. He ran before Ahab. I just think this is just a cool little addition. Oh, by the way, Elijah was so filled with the spirit that he outran a chariot. It's just, it's just a neat little addition to the story that he is so in step that God is doing something so powerful. And so dynamic that here is this little addition, and it's not even like the big part of the story. It's just like, oh yeah, by the way, this happened as well. And so they get to Jezreel. That is Ahab's capital. Remember what's going on in Israel at the time. Israel has been divided. There is a divided kingdom in the north. There is ten tribes, and the king Ahab is one of the most wicked kings we will ever have. He is mostly wicked because we have one of the most wicked people in the entire Bible is married to him named Jezebel. Last week, remember John talked about that? No one has named their kid Jezebel for a reason. She is evil incarnate in the Bible. Absolutely wicked beyond wicked. And so Jezreel is Ahab's capital in the north. And in the south, there is a different king ruling. And then so there's division. There is war. They don't get along. This isn't like there's a peaceful divide. There is, they don't get along with each other at all. And this is happening kind of in the northern part of Israel. So he goes back to Jezreel, and we got to pick up here in chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. You've got to remember, a lot, Ahab has just watched a crazy, incredible feat. Something impossible by human standards. God has done something incredible. And Ahab comes home, and I mean, maybe this is just me in my head. He goes into Jezebel and says, hey, I just saw something incredible. I saw Elijah do this and Elijah do that. And now there's rain. Isn't this incredible? And they just, I remember just, just half a chapter ago, everyone was saying, Yahweh, he is God alone. Baal is not God. Yahweh is God. Ahab has witnessed this. He's had his come to Jesus moment. He has seen his whole religion change around. He goes home to his wife and tells her all this, what's going on. And then Jezebel, this is her response. This is, this is, the wickedness of Jezebel. Then she sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So really translated the sea saying, she's making an oath to her gods, which is really ironic because her gods are the power because she's given them power. She's worshiping herself. So she's trying to swear by something that she's gotten on her own power. But she's basically saying, I, I swear before all my gods that if I haven't killed you by tomorrow, they can do with me what they want. Sounds like a really great message. Oh, Ahab's message of come to Jesus has really affected Jezebel really well. Obviously not. Jezebel is seething. She is absolutely disgusted with self-worship and power. Things have gone exactly the opposite direction of where they were supposed to go. And her response to Elijah, who's at the gate of the city, is to send him a message saying, if I see you, I'm going to kill you. You have destroyed everything. I will do everything in my power to kill you, to end your life. So we obviously have 
a different perspective of the preceding events from Jezebel. I think this speaks a lot to the shell of a man that is Ahab and the absolute evil incarnate that is Jezebel herself. She's so wicked that she actually, um, Ahab goes down as a wicked king, but he, in the end, he will actually repent. But in the end of days, in the book of Revelation, Jezebel comes, they talk about Jezebel as the wickedness, as the wickedness of Jezebel will impact the nation. She's so wicked that they talk about it in the end of days. That's really, really bad. (laughs) That's bad that she has a lasting influence because of her evil. So she sends a message, and then Elijah was afraid. This is verse 3. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Things have shifted in a different direction than what we thought. I know we started this last chapter. Maybe there's a little bit of hope welling up inside of us. Well, John and Joel said that Kings was only going to get progressively worse as we went on. And, and, but we have this really awesome chapter where the world is, they, they worship Baal and then Elijah comes and it's changed everything and the fire has come down and demolished the sacrifice. And wow, what an absolutely incredible moment where God, maybe he's shifting, maybe the tides are turning. And in just a moment, he comes back and Jezebel turns everything against him. Everything is, I'm going to kill you if I see you, and I'm going to do it by tomorrow. So he gets up, and he flees for his life. So he's fleeing from the north, and he's coming down. He's crossing, really, a a national divide line, coming down into Judah, trying to get away, trying to be safe from Jezebel, because she's got an entire nation out to get him. Because remember, Elijah feels absolutely alone in this. He goes, no one is on my side. No one is with me. No one loves God. Why am I out by myself? Even in the midst of this incredible thing, the, the absolute love of the world, the love of what you want, the love of the selfishness of, of worshiping what we want, what feels right to us, what fills us up, that's what Jezebel has so clung to. She is in love with that. And she will not let that go. And I will kill whoever I must to take care of that. I don't care if he does spectacular things of power. I want what I want. And the world is mine to control. That's the position of Jezebel. And so he flees. And he gets down to Judah and he goes another day's uh, journey into the wilderness to get away. And there he finally stops. Uh, Verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. Uh, Some of your translations might say uh, a juniper tree. Uh, That's fine, but Minnesota, people think junipers are those little shrub bushes that have the blueberries on them, right? Uh, That's not a juniper in, in, in Middle Eastern time. A juniper, a broom tree, is probably more descriptive of the actual tree. It's this tall, skinny trunk. It goes up six, seven, eight, ten feet, and then it's got this big canopy over it. So if you can just just imagine, the wilderness in southern Israel is very desert-ish like. It's it's you can see the heat rising off off of the, the wilderness is the, the the haze, and in the midst of it is this lone broom tree. It's got deep roots. It goes down for the moisture, and it grows this tall, and it grows this huge canopy of shade. And you can imagine Elijah fleeing for his life into another nation. It was a day's journey into the wilderness. And he sees this lone canopy, this lone oasis, this lone, finally there is a spot where I can rest. Finally there's a spot where I can go and be. And he, and he collapses under the tree, running for days. 
to get away for his life from Jezebel. And he collapses under this tree. And he asked that he might die. That's his response. He collapses and he says, I would rather be dead. I'd rather not be here. Obviously, he's torn because he runs from Jezebel. He doesn't want to die. But he gets to this point and he collapses under this tree in the midst of a desert of heat, of of opposition, of utter isolation. Here is a a beaten and exhausted and and absolutely downtrodden Elijah who has been standing up for the things of God, who has gone on behalf of God. And here he is and he is exhausted. He is done. I just want to die. Let me go. What a what an honest statement. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? I think it's an honest statement. Elijah, who has just seen something absolutely miraculous. Fire has come from heaven and consumed the altars. And here he is, two, three, four days later, underneath a tree, how many miles away from what just happened? I just want to die, God. I just, I just want this to be over. I'm, I'm exhausted. I am done. I am tired. I have been running. No one likes me. Everyone hates me. Why? And he doesn't doubt God. He's not angry at God. He's just, he's just done. He's just exhausted with life. I think this is a great honest thing. I think something as Christians, we need to be more honest with ourselves to just be up front and just, God, I'm, I'm tired. I have, been, I have been walking. I have been trying. I have been trying to do the right things, but life just seems to go the, the wrong direction or things just continue to happen. What is, what is going on? I'm not mad, but I don't know what to do because I'm so turmoil. I'm overwhelmed with my emotion. I don't even know what to do. And he just lays down at the tree and lies down and says, just, just let me die. Let me, let me be. I'm tired of this. That's, that's a raw moment. We're going to see here in just a minute how, how God will respond to that, but it's almost the spiritual diary of Elijah. The, the true honesty of someone who's done so dynamic and powerful things for God. And here he is saying, I'm done. I am, I am spent. And he, um, and he lay down and he slept. A very good thing to do if you are tired. I know that sounds very ironic and obvious, but when we are emotionally, mentally, spiritually spent, there is very few things as theologically sound as taking a nap. And here's what happens. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and beheld, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in strength on that food for 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God. So here he is laying under this tree, pouring out his heart. I just want to die. I just want this to be over with. And he falls asleep. And Can you imagine? Hey, and you look up and there's an angel of the Lord. Would you, would you be terrified? Would you be relieved? Would you be like, oh, no, are you kidding me? I mean, I think this is, this is the ministry, the intentionality of God. Because where he's going to go is he's, he's leading him. He's, he's continually, intentionally investing in him. He sends an angel with a cake and water. Hey, get up, eat, and drink. 
So he gets up and eats and drinks and falls asleep again. Second time, hey, hey, get up and eat and drink because this, you're going to need your strength for the journey ahead is great. This will sustain you. This is, this is not just because, oh, did, did God not get the recipe right the first time? Was, was Elijah more hungry? Oh man, I didn't realize that you were that hungry. I would have sent double the cakes the first time. No, this is, this is the intentionality. This is the investment. This is what the purposefulness of, of God who knows his people, of Elijah who's being honest, who's exhausted, who's trying to do the will of God. Uh, one commentator, I really like it, he, he associated this with the ending of John. So Peter, at the ending of John, is fishing, and Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he calls Peter uh, back to shore. So Peter, in the previous chapters, has denied Jesus three times. I don't know the man. I don't know him. I tell you, I don't know anything to do with him. Jesus is crucified. Okay? He's dead, but here he resurrects from the dead, and here's Peter fishing, and Jesus and he calls to him. And he brings Peter over here, and he says, Peter, he says, Peter do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know all things. You know that I love you. Did Jesus not believe him the first two times? No, but it's the reassurance of Peter. Peter, you know that you love me. And here it is, the same thing, an angel coming down, bringing cake, saying, hey, take up and eat. Hey, take up and eat, because the journey you're about to go on is great. Elijah is reassured in that. It's not this, hey, I'll, I'll let you survive. It's no, I'm going to let you survive, but I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to take you to a spot. I'm going to reassure you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to support and sustain you. It's a lesson that I feel like I've learned in my life, unfortunately, probably too many times when I've been in a similar boat where it's like, God, I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm just done. I'm exhausted. Why is life so difficult? Why is life so full right now? It may not even be bad things. It's just full. And God continues to whisper in those moments, because you're doing it. Let me do it. And it's, it's, it's an identity-shattering moment because it's like, I thought I was. But then he reassures me saying, I know, but you continue to try to take things and do them on your own. God is a God who sustains, who provides. He set the whole world in motion by the power of his word, what Colossians says. And he is here to provide and to give us life and to speak to our heart, and to, to grow us, and to, to continue to make us spiritually deeper. Because we don't just know things about God. God has revealed himself so that we can actually know him, to have that relationship with him. In our heart of our hearts, in our depth of our being, we know that God is God, and he whispers to us, and he draws us in, and he pursues us, and he says, I am your God, and you are my people. What a great reassurance to, uh, to a world that is desperately in need of hope. Second times, two times, here, here. So he goes and he takes, and he goes on a 40-day journey to the mountain of God. Uh, it says Mount Horeb. Uh, we know this mountain by another name called Mount Sinai. It is a 334-mile journey from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai. This is not a, oh, I'm just going to go that mountain over there. No, this is 40 days of journey. Can you imagine the heart, the contemplation that goes in the mind of Elijah as he walks, rides, whatever, to get to Mount Sinai? Continues through the wilderness, the rocky, hilly wilderness, sustained by two cakes and a couple jars of water from God. The thoughts he has, 
the, the wrestling he is, and he gets to the mountain of God. Uh, verse 9, and there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. So you just imagine, this is the great mountain of Israel. This is the mountain of, of, of the, the legendary mountain in, in Israel's history. This is where Moses got the Ten Commandments. This is where God rested on the mountain when we came out of Egypt in the wilderness. This is the mountain of God. It is the pinnacle moment. If any physical thing has spiritual significance in the history of Israel, it's this. And he comes up there and he goes up the mountain. And I don't know how far he goes up. And he finds a cave. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, and I love this phrase, what are you doing here? Elijah, who's been fed, sustained, takes his 40-day journey, climbs up the mountain, gets in a cave. And God goes, what are you doing here? What a, what a question about who we are. What a question about our identity and the core of, of, of our being. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What are you, what's your, what's the, he's asking this question to get Elijah stirring, to, to get the raw emotion out of this. And Elijah, I think, gives a great honest answer. He says, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophet, the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Because it's just me, God. I have done these things, I am trying to follow you, and it's just me. It's just, do you not see, it's just me. They've killed all the other prophets, they've taken them away, and they're trying to kill me. I have been jealous for the Lord of hosts. Now, host means something totally different in today's world. If we have, think of a host, we think of a party where uh, you come over and I'm hosting and I make sure everyone's good and happy. Okay, the Lord of hosts in the Hebrew means the Lord of armies, the Lord of many. Remember in the Christmas story, and the heavenly host was there with them glorifying God. This is the multitude of angels. Elijah's being like, hey, I wanted you to come with the armies and I wanted you to wipe them from the face of the earth. I wanted you to continue to do what you did on Mount Carmel. I wanted you to take it and go through the rest of it all. Why don't you just continue to take out Jezebel and Ahab and everyone else who's wicked? That's, that's what I wanted, God. You want to know why I'm here? Because I'm frustrated. Because this is not what I wanted. This is, I wanted you to do this. I've been following and you're doing something else. I wanted you to be the Lord of the hosts. Where are you with your angels? Where are you with what this is going on? You've got the power. You've got the ability. What are you doing here? And I love God's response. Elijah, frustrated. And the Lord responds with, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. He doesn't respond to anything Elijah says, but he's about to do something. Do something really incredible. Go stand at the mountain, go out to the mountain of the cave and just wait for me. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So somehow in that last wind, fire, earthquake, Elijah has, has moved away from the mouth of the cave. And I, I can just imagine him scooting a little ways back. 
Because there's the great wind and it tears pieces of the side of the mountain. This isn't, a, this isn't even the wind that we've seen around here. This is a wind that tears mountains apart. Earthquakes that shake and little ground that they're upon and fire. He's just, he just witnessed fire consuming the altar. And here it is, but God was not in those things. Does that mean that God is not in control of those things? No. Does that mean that God does not manifest himself in creation in powerful ways? No, absolutely he does. But in this moment, there was wind and earthquake and fire, and then there was a low, gentle whisper. And so he grabs his cloak, and he covers his face, and he goes out to the mouth of the cave. He's not covering his face because of the dust. It's not because, oh man, it's really sunny outside. No, this is the mountain of God. The same mountain where Moses came down and his face was brilliant white from being in the presence of God. Elijah knew in that whisper, there is God. And so he covers his face knowing that when he goes out, he's going to encounter God. His God, the God he knows, the God who has revealed himself, the God who is in control. There he knows, he covers his face. He went out and stood at the entrance of a cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here? Same question. Same question. Same idea. Cakes twice. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And in the midst of this, God is showing himself. It's not this. It's not that. It's not the earthquake. It's not the might. It's not the power. It's not the earth-rattling majesty that is God. But it's the whisper to the very heart of Elijah saying, What are you doing? What are you doing here? here? Here am I, the God who has called you, who has gifted you, who has made a way, who has paved this. He knows God, and here he is right here, revealing himself in the gentle whisper to the very core. Could he have appeared and, and terrified the absolute tar out of Elijah? Yes. But he whispers. He whispers to him, what are you doing? Who are you? Who are you? You're mine. What a, what a challenge to the identity. Where do you believe you really are? Who do you really think you are? Because you're trying to do this on your own. You're trying to do this by your power. And here is God saying, I am the God. I'm the one who made this. I'm the one who put rulers in place. I'm the one who sustains, controls, who gifts, who does these things. I am this God, and I am whispering to you in your very heart because that's what Elijah needed. He needed someone to just be gentle in that moment because it's a God who is intentional, a God who seeks us a God who doesn't want to fear us into submission, but a God who wants to show us and love us and pursue us till we understand that our hearts have been captured by him. And we can't help but love. We can't help but worship. We can't help but turn our attention to the God who is able to do the unbelievable, who's able to do the majestic, who's able to do the power, but who whispers to our hearts. I can't help but think of a verse in Matthew uh, where it talks about the heart of Jesus. I mean, we believe in Trinity. So this is three in one, God, Jesus, they're the same. And they say, the heart of Jesus is gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. That's what a picture, gentle of lowly of heart. How he reaches, how he is intentional, how he's driving after the heart of people. Elijah, who is spent, who's done. I don't, I don't know what to do. And here he is encountering God on the mountain of God and the incredibleness and God gentle and lowly, but yet in all awesome and power and might whispers to the heart of Elijah. 
What assurance. What a, what a challenge. What great comfort. And Elijah goes on his spiel. I've been jealous for this. I've been doing this. And God just says, go. And he sends Elijah out. He sends him back. He has restored him. He has shown him who he is. He has whispered to his heart. He has been intentional. Now he says, go. What an example of a man who, who doesn't just know things about God, who doesn't just know statistics and facts and, and all the analytics about God. And I can tell you all the great theology and I can tell you things about God and all his names. Elijah knew him. He had the relationship with God and God comes to and whispers to his heart and captures him. That's a, what a fantastic relationship. And we have that access. As Christians, we can encounter and love and speak to God because that's what kind of relationship he desires with his people. He has revealed himself so that he can be known so that we can know him. Not know things about him. We can know him. And he sends them out. He sends them out. It fits uh, really well with, uh, so one of my favorite books that I try to read every couple of years is called Knowing God by J.A. Packer. And he has three things in there that uh, describe, he uses three things that describe a relationship that you can see in people that describe a relationship with God. That when you look at them, these three things stand out that I know that they have that depth, that they, in their heart of hearts, they love God, that they know God. They don't just know things about him, that they've had those whisper conversations, but yet are in awe of the, of the earthquake and the fire. They have that relationship. The first one is that they do, they have great energy for God. We see this in Elijah. He has great energy for God. He's, he lays on his side for, I don't know how many days. He gets up and he goes and challenges the prophets of Baal on the Mount Carmel. He speaks to the nations. Great energy. He's willing. He's excited to do the things for God. Secondly, he's got great boldness. That is absolutely Elijah, that he can go stand before 450 prophets and say, my God is bigger because he knows his God's going to win. It's not a, I've got a really good chance because I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. He knows great boldness. And lastly, great contentment. That even in the midst of, I'm done, I'm spent. God, what are you doing? I don't understand this in the moment. What is happening? Great contentment to the whisper. Okay, I may not understand it. I may not fully get it, but I know you, and you know me, and I know that you're about the business of your people and your worship, and I'm all in, and I will go, and I will do, because not because out of duty, but because out of relationship. I, he knows God. He knows what he's about. He's not, he's not going to double-cross him. He's not going to pull the rug off from underneath him. He's not going to turn his back on him. Elijah knows that God is God. He is for his people. He has been had cakes. He's had the whisper in his heart. He knows, and he's content because he knows that God is love, and he loves him. And our response is to go and to follow and to love him as well. Job, as a passage, uh, one of his friends, quote-unquote friends, has challenged him on what he believes about God. And Job responds in the midst of, of absolute decimation. He says, The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. He's talking about God. 
by his power, he stilled the seas. Sounds a little bit like the Jesus we know too. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. By his hand, pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are about the outskirts of his ways. These are just the outskirts. This is just the fringe. This is just the edge of the power of God. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? By the thunder of his power, who can understand? But it's in the whisper. It's in the intimacy. It's in the moment of God addressing our hearts. It's amazing. Thank you, guys. If you have questions, let me know. Otherwise, have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.